Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, welcome. Hi, Zelda. Hey, Denise. We've got, looks like we've got some cool stuff to talk about today. Yes, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. This is going to be fun. Do you want me to just launch on in? Yeah, because this is going to be a long one, and we might as well get, get started right away. Okay. Well, let me tell you then about Glenn Edward Rogers. He was also known as the Casanova Killer, and he had a thing for redheads. This is not a big surprise, his mama was a redhead. Growing up in Ohio, he came from a family that would have been referred to in his circles as white trash. He had five brothers and a sister and grew up in relative poverty. His dad was an alcoholic who beat his mom. Both parents abused all their kids and stepped out on each other. Now, our Glenn was not a bright kid, but he was really cute, at least when his skin condition was under control. His skin would break out in horrible red splotches when he was really angry or frustrated. And at the age of 14, while he was in juvie, was diagnosed with porphyria, a blood disorder also known as Mad King George disease. In addition to the skin problems, other symptoms can be mental illness, such as confusion, paranoia, disorientation, and hallucinations. Certain particular physical manifestations of this disease, such as oddly colored urine and feces, were instrumental in linking Glenn Rogers to the murders he committed. So how about that? His coup gave him away. (laughs) Glenn's criminal career started young. He started drinking and doing drugs when he was 12. He landed in juvie after getting caught burglarizing houses with his brother Clay. He was expelled from school at age 16. At the time he was in ninth grade, 16, ninth grade and F's in every subject. After that, he was in and out of jail most of his life, either for assault charges, drunk driving, fraud. Um, When he was 17, he beat his mother and her lover with a baseball bat after coming across them in a bar. Over the course of his life, it should be noted, he was inflicted by many, many head injuries from fights and accidents. His experience with prostitutes, though, started young as well. His first girlfriend when he was 16, her name was Debbie, was a 13-year-old girl getting tricked out. She became pregnant by one of her Johns and Glenn married her after the baby was born. So it should be noted they had one child together and because he continually abused her, Debbie divorced him after about two years of marriage. Debbie herself eventually died from complications from cocaine use when she was about 30. Now, Glenn managed to find girlfriends easily, which kind of surprises me, and he did pimp for a while in his 20s. He had another son with a woman he was dating. Um, Her name was Catherine Mary Capoina. Oh, and it is worth noting, he worked as a carny for three years. Oh, I missed that. 
this is how the story's about Kearney's, you know? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I've seen some pictures of him when he was younger, and he was kind of attractive, so I could see him attracting women, but you would think once you got to know him, you'd be like, no thanks, I'll step away. Yeah, like one conversation in, perhaps, you know? Yeah. So about the time he's 28 years old, people start dying around him. The first was Thomas Allen Wolfser, who died in his nursing home. Glenn told a guy in a bar that he had injected whiskey into the old man's IV, but police did not bother to investigate. Oh. Then, I know, right? Yeah. Then a year later, in January 1992, Carrie Ellen Gaskins, a woman he was tricking out, was found stabbed to death. Later that year, Glenn was using a fake ID under the name James Peters and was introduced to Nicole Kidman and began to occasionally drink and use drugs with Nicole and O.J. Simpson. So Glenn, being perpetually unemployable, I'm sorry? Is that Nicole Kidman? No, Nicole and O.J. Simpson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not Nicole Boy, Kidman. That's a whole She's different thing. Nicole Kidman is a queen who will not be disparaged. Okay. Just <laughs> sure. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. <laughs> Glenn being perpetually unemployable was mooching off of a Mark by the name of Mark Peters in Hamilton, Ohio. So strings of things start happening at this point. In August 1993, Kelly Lynn Camargo, age 16, is killed in Hamilton, Ohio after leaving a biker bar. A little bit later, a prostitute linked to Glenn, whose name was Mer Mary, was murdered. And he didn't stop there. He murdered Mark Peters, the guy he was mooching off of, mm -hmm. buried him in the Rogers family cabin in Kentucky, and then sold all his stuff. His partner in that crime was a woman named Liz, who Glenn also murdered later. So Glenn runs off to California, living off of various women. While in L.A., he served a bit of time in jail for assault with a deadly weapon and then later for assaulting his girlfriend. In 1995, Glenn met Sandra Janelle Gallagher, whom he raped, stabbed to death, and then set her truck on fire with her body in it. Damn. Yeah. This guy, he's a monster. Glenn ran off to Mississippi then, where he met Linda Price, and they moved in together fairly quickly. After not hearing from her for about a week, her family goes to her apartment and finds her dead, mutilated body in the bathtub. Meanwhile, Glenn's on his way to Florida by way of Louisiana. <laughs> so we're encroaching on him. It's now November 1995. Glenn meets Tina Marie Cribs in Tampa, and she's later found stabbed to death in a motel room. Glenn goes back to Louisiana. On November 9th, two days later, Glenn murders Andy Giles Sutton in Louisiana. November 13th, so four days later, Glenn flees to his family in Kentucky. They're like, oh, hell no, and called the police, who pick him up and tell him he's being investigated for five murders. And Rogers was like, meh, and said he killed 70 people so they can fuck all the way off. He later recanted that confession. He was tried and found guilty in Florida. While there, a court psychiatrist diagnosed Glenn with brain damage, chronic psychotic disturbance, and an IQ of 76, i.e. mental disability. Regardless, Glenn was sentenced to death in Florida. And then, for the first time ever in the United States, Florida extradited Glenn to California for another murder trial. He was also sentenced to death in California. But he was shuffled back to Florida to be executed by electric chair and to this day sits on death row awaiting execution. 
The 2012 documentary, My Brother the Serial Killer, examined Rogers' crimes and included claims that Rogers killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman in 1994. According to Rogers' brother Clay, Rogers claimed that before the murders, he had met Brown and was going to take her down. Well, Rogers' family stated he had informed them that he'd been working for Nicole in 1994 and that he'd made verbal threats about her to them. Rogers later spoke to a criminal profiler about the Goldman Simpson murders, providing details about the crime and remarking that he had been hired by O.J. Simpson to steal a pair of earrings and potentially murder Nicole. Now, I'm going to put in my own little thoughts here. I mean, the Nicole Brown Simpson murder does kind of track with how we like to kill people, which yes, is basically yes. stab them and it gets super bloody and all of that. Well, the LA police checked into it and decided the evidence was actually very weak to link Glenn Rogers to the killing of Nicole Brown Simpson, so he was never charged, and they continued to favor O.J. Simpson as her murderer. So, thus is the story of the life and hanging out on death row situation of Glenn Edward Rogers. Yeah, he's a mess. <laughs> yes. And... and I can't wait to hear about his family because I tell you what, like, I mean, really, it was almost from the get-go. He oh, wasn't yeah. just bad news. He was like the worst news. Yeah. And even his brothers, I saw a couple articles. And I didn't want to get too deep into the brothers. At least one of them was a mess. The one who did the documentary, was that Clay? Clay. Yeah. Well, he, that's he how been he started climbing. Yeah, he was arrested several times in his life, from what I could tell. So, I mean, yeah. he's no angel himself, but he also wasn't out killing multiple people randomly or otherwise. Mm -hmm. One thing yep. I did find interesting about the victims, Sandra, Linda, and Tina Marie, I think I have the right one, is they were mm -hmm. all born the same exact year. Yeah. 1961. Yeah. He's born in 1962, so... Well, and most of his uh, victims were also redheads. Yeah. So he definitely had a type and an age, you know, somebody, a contemporary. Mm -hmm. So, and there were a couple of things that came across that showed he had extreme anger toward his mother, which I think that kind of plays itself out <laughs> where you can kind of see, Hey, I beat my mother with a baseball bat. Yeah. I think that's kind of extreme anger, you know? Oh, definitely. And I can see it, but at the same time, I, I, it, I wonder if it was misdirected a little bit sometimes as well. Oh, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure she was abusive as well, but instead of having a lot of anger towards his own father, it was more towards the mother. Well, apparently, you know, her trick with him was to hold him under the water when she was bathing him oh. and locking him up in a closet, tying his hands together and putting him in a closet. So yeah, his mom was just trash too. Oh, well, okay. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would um, be a problem there. You think? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, where in that era where he grew up, it really wasn't until like the, the eighties, where people started getting invested in making sure other people's children weren't being abused because right. in the, you know, before then people were like, it's your family, it's your business and they'll feel sorry for the kids, but mm -hmm. 
but they're not going to do anything about it. Nobody's going to interfere. And I, I kind of wonder if as we go along, you know, we're seeing in general crime is trending downward in the United yeah. States, um, both as a result of the fact the country is wealthier than it had been previously. But I also wonder if because, you know, child abuse is just getting caught a lot quicker and dealt with instead of just letting, pe letting kids rock. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, it wasn't really dealt with as much back then. Mm -mm. It was this thing, well, you can spank your child and that would be the excuse. Well, I just spanked them. I wasn't abusing them. And now spanking as a whole is looked down on completely. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I also think part of the issue, and we'll get to a little bit, was that um, his father did die in 1987. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't be the target for his rage as much by that point, but his mother lived until 2006. Yeah. yeah. So it, she would have been more of the target by the time he was really lashing out. Um, so we'll get started. He was born in July, 1962. And as you said, he met young Deborah. Her name was Deborah Ann Nix. And she was 16, like you said, and he was 18 when they got married in Butler County, Ohio. They divorced two years later in August 1983. And the reason listed was of, as gross neglect of duty. Um, but apparently Nix claimed, you know, brutal physical assault and abuse by Glenn towards her. She never remarried. And, but she had other children, I believe, and she died though in March 1994 when she was eight months pregnant. Their children, though, were placed then in foster care in December 1995. Now, he put his name on the birth certificate of the, her first child. What's interesting is different things I read point, oh, well, she was pregnant when they got married and it was another man's child. She was not pregnant when they got married because her son, Clinton, and I'll say his name and you'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. His name was Clinton Dwayne Rogers, was born when she was 15, two years, almost two years prior to them actually getting married. So she was a single mom at the age of 14, 15. And Glenn is listed as the father on that birth. But it's possible he put his name on there as a support. But the child was born in August 1979. So what I read about that was that the baby wasn't actually his, mm -hmm. but his plan was to basically adopt the child because right. he loved her so much. And then they end up just putting his name on the birth certificate, but it's highly unlikely that he's actually the father of her first child. Right. And, and I, I believe that. It's just, I find it interesting that this happens two years prior to them getting married. Mm -hmm. Um. Unfortunately, poor Clinton died at the age of 27 in July 2007. I don't know why, but he was living in Texas, and that's where they were cared. But his brother, as far as I can tell, is still alive, and he was born the year that his parents did get married. So it's probably good for them, though, that they didn't grow up with both of them, especially not dad. Um, who knows the reasons 
you know, Deborah ended up going into prostitution at such a young age. I, well, I mean, she must have been tricked out by her parents, you know, at that age. Somebody. Yeah, because she was like 13. Or sexually abused and then molested as a young girl and then found somebody who said, hey, you can earn money doing this and took advantage of her vulnerability. Entirely possible. We don't really have much information on her. No, and I couldn't find very much. And I figure, let her rest in peace and we'll go on from there. Because in some ways, I see her as his first victim in, in so many ways. Now, Glenn is the son of Claude Rogers and Edna May Sears. He is one of seven children. There were six boys and one girl. And his parents were married in May 1947. I think he might be the youngest. I could not get confirmation. But considering that they married in 1947, he was born in 1962, he's one of the youngest, at least. Now, during the trial, his oldest brother, Claude Jr., testified that they were abused by their parents. He actually went on the stand, I guess in some ways uh, on the defense, as mitigating factors for the abuse. And mentioned that his father's an alcoholic with mean temper and the mother was frightened and never displayed love. And I found this in an article in the Tallahassee Democrat on the 9th of May, 1997. The family was dysfunctional. There were never signs of affection. No one hugged Claude Rogers Jr. testified in the penalty phase of his younger brother's first degree murder trial. Parents Claude Sr. and Edna Rogers and their seven children never sat down to a meal together. Words or even expressions of love were never exchanged. The children grew up watching their father abuse their mother, breaking her nose several times. He smashed furniture from one end of the house to the other, destroying everything in his path and shot up the neighborhood, said the younger Claude Rogers, a 47-year-old real estate agent from Palm Springs, California, and a Vietnam veteran. So the abuse was really bad. And while I don't doubt that the mother, Edna, abused him as well, I also wonder if sometimes children don't put the blame on the mom for not protecting them from the father as well. And as you said in that uh, documentary, his brother Clay also echoed the abuse they all suffered in the home. Now, we get to some of the really good stuff because this family is a mess. Oh my goodness. This is a combination. This, I think Glenn Edward Rogers is a true combination of nature and nurture. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. So we'll start with his mom, Edna May Sears. She was born in 1931. And as I said earlier, she died in 2006 in Ohio. And I have her obituary and I'll probably put it on the website. She lists her children. And what I found entertaining because she dies in 2006, he's in jail, but he's listed. And it goes through and it goes, Gary Rogers and his wife of such and such, you know, and goes Glenn Rogers of Florida. So <laughs> doesn't even kind of, <laughs> just kind of losses over everything. Wow. And I found that entertaining. Um, her mother was Clara B. Sutherland, who was born in 1899. 
And she died in 1947, the same year that Edna married Claude Rogers. She was the youngest daughter of three to Leander and Sarah No Sutherland. The Sutherlands go back to Daniel, who was born in 1779 in North Carolina. And here's why I do want to make a quick note to our listeners about my process. We, I get two weeks to do the research before we record. So I'm not going as far back as it's possible to go. I'm going back as far as I can without having to give too much of a dig because otherwise it could take a long time. Most family trees take years to work on and you're never done. So I just thought I should make a note of that. But the, so the Southerners go back to Daniel and his wife, Frances. It was them who first settled in Kentucky, most notably in Laurel County. This county still has, to this day, blue laws in place, only allowing alcohol sales in the town of London, Kentucky. So something tells me all the businesses in London are pretty happy to sell the alcohol because it's for the whole county. <laughs> um, and notably, this county is where Kentucky Fried Chicken began. Under oh, that's good Colonel to know. Harlan Sanders, yes. Edna's mother, Clara Sutherland, first married James C. Barker around 1919 in Laurel County, Kentucky. Together, they had four sons. On the same day their son, John Charles, was born, James Barker died of a gunshot wound to the abdomen. He was 24. Now, at the time, mining was a big deal, and there were a lot of demonstrations going on around the coal mines and around um, the railroads and those types of things. And I believe this is involving a railroad. Yes. So there's an article in the Kentucky Advocate on the 30th of January, 1923, and the headline says, Big Fight. Two men killed and two wounded in a battle early today between Louisville and Nashville Railroad employees and special policemen. J.C. Barker, dispatcher, shot through the abdomen, died on operating table. George Yarden, special policeman from London, Kentucky, instantly killed. Jeff Barker, switchman and young man named Day, wounded, not seriously. Apparently shooting had no connection with Louisville and Nashville Railroad strike. Both Barkers on night duty at railroad yards. On way home, shot fired. Special policemen came up and inquired who fired. Barkers apparently resented inquiry and next officer's claim, Bar Barkers threw pistols and began let me try that again. An ex-officer's claim Barkers drew pistols and began shooting. Yarden fell at first fire. Another officer returned fire. J.C. Barker fell riddled with bullets in stomach. He continued to fire until strength ebbed. Jeff Barker fell with bullet in each leg. And that J.C. Barker is James C. Barker, Clara's first husband. Wow. Apparently, um, J.C. or James C. and his brother Jeff were working for the railroad and said that they were shooting at rocks and were really offended when the police happened upon them and questioned them about it. So the shootout began. Wow. And that was her first husband. That was her first husband. And it's weird when you think about, well, if this hadn't happened, then this wouldn't. 
Well, this is one of those situations because had her first husband not been killed, she would have married her second husband, Robert C. Sears, the next year around 1924. And they relocated to Hamilton, Ohio, where they had five children, two girls and three boys, one of the girls being the daughter, Edna May Sears, Glenn's mother. So, as I said, Edna's father was Leander Sutherland. His uncle, Granville Henderson Sutherland, was born in 1869. And he moved to Florida, where he became the city commissioner of Orlando, Florida. Um, for it, it was for a very short time. There was some controversy involving the mayor who had stepped down, and that ended up making Granville the acting mayor of Orlando, Florida for a short time in the 1920s. This is around 1923 to 1924. Oh my, oh my gosh. And he had grand plans to increase business and do things, but there was some controversy involving him as well. Well, soon after the new mayor was elected, he announced he would not be seeking re-election in, in October 1925, and he returned to Kentucky to care for his mother, Glenn's second great-grandmother, Luann Reynolds Sutherland. Granville died in 1931 at the age of 61. His mother died two years later, age 94. So I found that an interesting little story. Granville had some children who had children, and we go to Glenn's third cousins. And I, I'm jumping around here a little bit because I find these stories kind of interesting. The first one's kind of sad. Um, Joe H. Meyer is a third cousin and he was killed at the age of seven while on his scooter by a drunk driver. Oh, that's true. This is in the 1950s. Driver was sent to prison for five years for drunk driving. Now, what I found fascinating about this one, this one ha happened in Austin, Texas. His parents were divorced, and he lived with dad, not with mom. Hmm. His mom remarried um, Colonel Lass. I can't remember his name. And they had a daughter, his half-sister. And his mother's name was Lenita Huggins. This is Granville's granddaughter. So. Okay. Her daughter was Janice Elodi Lass, and she married a man by the name of Lucky Phillips. This was her second husband, and they married in Reno on the 28th of August, 1977. Then in January 1980, there was a news report in the LA Times. Wife slain, spouse held. Marital problems apparently led to the shooting death of a 31-year-old Port Hunani. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Woman, police detective said Saturday, Janice Phillips was found dead of a gunshot wound in the head in her home Friday. Her estranged husband, Lucky Phillips, 30, has been arrested and booked into Ventura County Jail on suspicion of murder. He is still in jail. He is 70 years old, and I checked, and he's still sitting in prison over these charges. Wow. Well, good. He should be. Right? Well, now we're going to go back a little further, and we're going to go to Alf Alfred Sutherland, which is Glenn's third great-grandfather. Good. Third great-grandfather, not father. Um, and 
his second wife, Kizzy Frazier. So Kizzy is not his third great grandmother. Um, after his third great grandmother passed away, he remarried Kizzy. And they had a son by the name of Alexander. I found this amusing little, well, amusing and sad little story in the Courier Journal on April 20th, 1885. A foolish act results fatally. And it describes how Alex Sutherland was run over by a passenger train about four o'clock this morning, a mile and a half east of this place and literally torn to pieces. And this is east of Lebanon, Kentucky. A few hours later, his remains were gathered up and brought to town on a freight train. The coroner was notified, an inquest held, and a verdict rendered in accordance with the facts elicited, which were as follows. Last Thursday, Sutherland, a young man, about 18 or 19 years of age, started from the eastern part of Laurel County, where he had been living, to walk to Indiana, where his mother, Mrs. Kizzy Broadstreet, is now living. So this is after his father had died. She is said to live either in Putnam or Hendricks County. He was accompanied by two uncles, Melvin Frazier and Wyatt Winchester Frazier, who are brothers of Mrs. Broadstreet. Saturday night, they applied at two houses near the line of the Knoxville branch for lodging, but were refused. They lay down in the corner of a, this is hard to read, apologies. They lay down in the corner of a fence shortly after dark and went to sleep. How long they slept, they do not know, but waking up cold, they determined to pursue their journey. They walked on down the railroad track for some miles and being much fatigued, lay down to rest. Sutherland laid in the middle of the track, face downward. The Frasers laid outside the tracks on opposite sides. Melvin having his head between two cross ties. They did not intend to fall asleep, but they did and slept so soundly that the noise of the approaching train did not arouse them. Right? You guys should see Zelda's eyes. They're popping out of her head. The express from Knoxville to Louisville passed that point about 4 a.m. The first indication that Melvin Fraser had of the coming of the train was when the cow catcher knocked his hat off when he rolled over into the ditch. Wyatt was struck on the arm and his coat slightly torn at the elbow. Both rose up uninjured, though badly frightened, and called Alex. There was no response. They hunted around in the dark and found the hat of the deceased and concluding correctly that he was dead, went to the neighboring house for assistance. They were advised to come to town, which they did. And they sum up the article at the very end. Could you imagine in the middle of the night, these two hobos, you know, knocking on your door going, I think our friend just got killed on the tracks. You would answer it with the shotgun, right? Be like, go to town. I am not helping you. They probably didn't even have a phone, you know? It was just well, like, yeah, especially wow. 1885. That would have been common. And the, the last paragraph is, is the best part. The Frasers are evidently very ignorant young men. And the party had probably never been so far from home before. Oh, my. So apparently there was a lack of brains in the family even back then. So, wow. yeah. But I was, I read that. I'm like, no, he laid in the middle of the tracks. That's just nuts. Especially like, back then. 
Like, did that actually really happen that way, though? I'm sitting here going, you know, did he fall asleep? Right? You know? too much of murder. I just kind of wonder about that. Especially since they said he was laying with his head down. Like, yeah, he was, was laying with his, on his stomach with his face down. Who does that yeah. on, the, on railroad tracks? Yeah. yeah. It does seem a little suspicious there. Mm-hmm. So that's the Sutherland line and their adventures in life. Now we're going to go to Robert Sears, Edna's father and Glenn's grandfather. He was the son of William Bluford, William Bluford Sears, and Susan Francis, or Fanny Sexton. Now, the last name Sexton, there was a lot of varieties on this. It, they were very Irish, it turns out, that family. And it was evolved from Sexton, S-E-X-S-O-N, or, and it turned into Sexton over time. Um, but Robert was born in 1897 and died at the age of 33 of pleurisy in Ohio, mm. leaving Clara as a widow again. Because remember, Clara's first husband was James Barker. He died mm. 1923. And then here we go. It's 1930. And her second husband passes away, Robert Sears. So in 1939, Clara married for the last time to Floyd Holland. Clara died eight years later in 1947 at the age of 47. Now we'll get into the Sears family and Robert Sears's um, information. Sorry. So now we're going to explore the Sears family. Um, Glenn's third great-grandfather, so Robert's second great-grandfather, what is that right? No, his great grandfather. Sorry. So Glenn's third great grandfather, which would be Robert's great grandfather, I believe, was James Sears Jr., who was born in 1798. In 1818, he married Polly Foley. Together, they had two or three sons, including Glenn's great second great grandfather, John Green Sears. But the marriage didn't last to Polly. They divorced by 1831. They got divorced in the early 1800s? Yes. Okay, there's got to be a story about that. that There has to be. I could not find it, but that Mm -hmm. is such a rare thing that that caught my attention right away. Because at first, I thought she died. Then I realized, no, she remarried. Wow. So there had to have been a divorce. Actually, not that she remarried. She was still alive, I should say. He remarried. Okay. Polly never remarried, actually, and lived with her son, William, until her death in 1884. Now, John married um, Mahala Anderson around 1831. Together, they had eight children. They remained married until sometime in the 1860s when they divorced. Wow. Yes. And again, I know this one I know because he's with another woman again, and she's actually still alive and kicking and married to somebody else. This time he married Malvina Williamson on the 23rd of December, 1868. Malvina was 50 years his junior. Whoa. Yes. 
So at first you're looking going, oh, is that a daughter I missed? No, that was his wife. So this is 1868. So he was about 70 years old, married to a 20 year old. Wow. Mm -hmm. She died 11 years later in 1879. No divorce needed on that one. Wait a second. So she died before he did, even though he was 70 years old when they got married. Mm-hmm. Man, she picked poorly. You got to make sure they got one foot on a banana peel if you're going to marry him <laughs> that old. Yes. Well, things lightly got uncomfortable after that um, because in 1880, he and his wife, Mahala, lived with their son, Francis, even though they were no longer married. So his ex-wife. So I found that amusing. Huh. And I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I was saying this was John. This is actually James, the third great-grandfather who had all these marriages. Okay. Just a quick correction. Now, the first Sears to settle in Kentucky, and I mean, Glenn Edward Rogers' family is really rooted in Kentucky. They did live in Ohio, but not nearly as long as their family was from uh, Kentucky. But his, the first Sears to sell in Kentucky was Reverend, Revolutionary War Patriot, Lieutenant Colonel John Lewis Sears of Virginia, and his wife, Judith Ann Wheeler. John Lewis Sears used his war bounty to buy the land in Kentucky in June 1806. So basically, John and Judith were Glenn's fifth great-grandparents. So there was a good one, you know, as far <laughs> as I can tell. Now, we're going to go over back to the Rogers and go to his father, Claude. Claude was born in 1924, and he died in 1987. He had various jobs. In 1930, he worked at a paper mill. In 1940, he was a cement mixer. 1943, he actually enlisted and served in the U.S. Army during World War II and served until 1946. It wouldn't surprise me if he had a bit of shell shock or what we now call PTSD. We may never know. In 1947, he worked for the paper mill again, and he worked there for a number of years, at least until 1960. And I got some of this information from um, the census records, city directories. Old-time city directories are wonderful because they will give you their address and tell you what their job is. So <laughs> they didn't do that in the 80s, but... <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, his enlistment records for World War II. And as was mentioned before, he was reportedly an alcoholic. And he kept losing, he lost his job probably at the paper mill because of his addiction. He was the oldest boy of four children. Now, we're going to talk about Claude's sister, Ona Rogers. She was born three years before him in 1921, and she was the oldest child in the family. She married John Langford Dees. 14 years her senior, around 1948. So she would have been 27, he would have been 41. She was his second wife. Now John Dees had a very troubled life. Oh, let me count the ways before he married her. In June 1926, he was tried for assault with intent to kill McKinley Browning in March that year. The judge dismissed him. Um, it seems like McKinley Browning had his own issues with the law. So there was some sense that there was some self-defense involved. Um, 
he was also charged with his own father, Buford, at the same time. And the incident happened in a pool room. And if you've ever watched The Music Man, you know pool rooms are nothing but trouble. Absolutely. In 1929, there's an article about another incident he faced. In the Hamilton Evening Journal, the Deatons and their kin came in large numbers to municipal court Monday night to testify and to see that the Deeses got laud. Twelve witnesses paraded before municipal court judge Alphonse Pater's rostrum when John Dees was arraigned on a charge of assaulting to kill Langley Denton three weeks ago. I'm sorry, Langley Deaton three weeks ago. Deaton was tapped on the head with a pair of iron pliers in one of a series of feud wars on Gordon Avenue. The Deatons left the courtroom in a body after Dees had been held to the grand jury under $500 bond. Dees immediately furnished bond and was released. A crowded courtroom got its thrill when Leslie Deaton, a brother of the man who was slugged, calmly admitted he killed a man in Kentucky. And the story goes on. And, and we go to, towards the bottom of the story. It says, Dees told a different story. He struck Langley, he said, because Langley cursed him because Langley was going to attack his father. Testimony had been concluded when Milliken Schultz, sea law director, returned Leslie Deaton to the stand. Schatz asked, you killed a man in Kentucky? Deaton, yes. Schatz, you were acquitted? I was. So this is another article I will share on the website. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, but wait, there's so much more. Then two months after this incident, Dee's had a rough Thanksgiving, again, at the pool room. And it turns out he owned the pool room. So no wonder he was getting into trouble. He got in trouble, though, when he accidentally shot his cousin in a fight with the Powell brothers. Uh, wow. Then, a few months later, in March 1930, he was arrested again, charged with an assault to kill men. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Um, this is from the Journal News, 9 April, 1930. And again, there's a big crowd that comes to hear all these charges. And it says that uh, charges of assaulting to rob Albert Ephart and Charles Brenneman were dropped upon request of the attorney for the state. Dees and Baldwin were busy during the remainder of the morning raising bond for the other four charges which will be presented to the grand jury. So they were actually charged with assault to kill several people. Um, Dees and Baldwin are alleged to have gone into the pool room and created a general roughhouse when told there was no good beer in the place. Two girls were among those injured in the fracas. Wow. Oh, yes, but that's not all. January 1931, John Dees was arrested for holding up a grocery store and filling station. I tell you, and John Dees is an uncle of uh, Glenn Edward Rogers. Great uncle. Wow. Um, station, and the headline in the Hamilton Daily News, this is out of Ohio, um, January 29th, 1931, says, Station holds up, holdups identify John Dees, police say, and arrest soon after threats. And it gets into the details, which I won't hear because it's hard to read the article, but it will be on the website. Oh, then February 1931, a month later, he ended a sentence, probably for this holdup, and the Indiana authorities were waiting to arrest him on burly charges as soon as he walked out of the jail. <laughs> wow. 
Now things go quiet for a little bit until February 1934, when he's arrested for a disturbance at a bar. Then April 1935, he's cited for drunk driving. In August 1935, John went to the hospital for a knife wound injury on the left side of the ribs, and Dees refused to say who did it. Wow. Now, his wife at this point, his first wife has had enough, and in October 1935, she filed for divorce, seeking custody of their children. I never saw a resolution, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was all granted. I know the divorce happened, but I I bet you she had full custody because I never saw um, the kids with him after that point. A month after that, he's charged with breach of peace after breaking someone's nose. Wow. He definitely had some anger issues. Definitely. Then in May 1936, because we're not done, (laughs) he's accused and later acquitted of breach of peace for cursing. (laughs) And abusing Mrs. Laura Andrews. Oh. Hmm. Well, he was abusing by the words. I don't think right, she but ever said. Who was she to him, though? Was it just some random neighbor or some okay. such, I believe? In October 1936, he was charged with assault and battery after a fight at the Brown Jug Cafe. I just love that name. In June 1937, He was involved in a motorcycle accident where he was hurled 30 feet into a field and only had cuts and bruises. Thus proving he's a demon. Yes. (laughs) It's got to be something. October 1937, he's charged with assault again. So this is what's killing me is this is during the time of the Great Depression. So he's basically spending the Depression getting thrown in jail. Like, yeah. I'm kind of wondering, was it so he could get food? <laughs> you know, like, but he owned a pool room at okay. one point. So yeah. I don't know. But then there's nothing, not another word. And he doesn't get married until 1948 to um, Ona, Claude's mm-hmm. sister. So, yeah. Oh, Did he serve in the military during World War II? No. Okay. Not that I could find. It's possible. There's a few John D's out there, so sometimes it's hard to narrow it down. Okay. So Claude's father and Ona's father was Shelby Rogers. Shelby was the fourth of six children. His mother died when he was 18 and she was 48. His parents were William Patton Rogers Jr., who was born in 1862, and his mother, Amanda Horn, was born in 1870. I traced the Rogers family back to Elder William Patton. This would be Glenn's fourth great-grandfather, who was born in 1797 in Kentucky. Elder William Patton was married to Abigail Larison in Estill, Kentucky in July 1813. They had, are you ready for it? 14 children. Wow. Mm -hmm. That woman was generous to God. (laughs) Abigail was the daughter of George Larison, who was born in 1775 in New Jersey. Now, I'm going to go back again. So we went all the way back to Elder William Patton Rogers. We're going to go over to Glenn Edward Rogers' second great-grandfather, who was William Patton Rogers, which is the same exact name as Elder William Patton Rogers, but totally different generations because he was born... In 1839, he was the son of John Patton Rogers, who was the son of Elder William. 
So William Patton Rogers, born in 1839, married Rebecca Ann Smith in May 1860. She was the daughter of Tobias Smith, Smith spelled with a Y in this case, and Matilda Garrett. The Smith family came from Virginia, but originated from England sometime in the mid, 18th, mid to late 18th century. Now, we're going to go all the way back to Glenn's grandfather again, Shelby Rogers, who was born in 1900 and married Mary Riley. Um, Mary Riley was born in 1904, and both of his grandparents died in the 70s. They were married in December 1920. They had four children, two girls, two boys, including his father, Claude Rogers. And according to the Hamilton Evening Journal, on the 21st September 1931, Shelby had a hearing scheduled that night accused of intoxication disorderly conduct in a warrant signed by his wife. Then the next day, there's an article in the Journal News, again, this time. On a warrant signed by his wife, Shelby Rogers, father of four children, was given a suspended fine of $100 and costs by Squire Lewis Bolser at New Miami Monday evening. He was released pending good behavior. W.W. Finfrock, humane officer was brought into case after it was reported that Rogers drove his wife from their home, leaving the children alone. And the headline says Rogers fined $100 for abusing wife. So the abuse uh, yeah. that Claude met out on his family was likely learned from his own father, Shelby. So lovely cycle of abuse and the drinking. So, so is his family, what country are they traceable back to? in all of the most of it is it, his family's been in the United States since before it was the United States. Mm -hmm. I believe most of them all were here a long time ago and all trace back to the British Isles in some way. Mm -hmm. and so, house. Did you ever read um, it's by Malcolm Gladwell and I'm trying to remember the name of it. But um, he was talking about how in Kentucky, you know, they have these longstanding feuds, the Hatfields and the McCoys, and, um, and that a lot of people who settled in those areas were descendants of people who came over as indentured servants hmm. and from like Scotland. And that as a, as a people, they tend to be very violent and hot-headed. Um, which, you know, you can look at just like the crime reports <laughs> and during this period of time that um, these things were happening. And it was interesting on his theory of it, which was um, if you're of farming folk, you know, it's really hard to like walk off with the crop of corn. It's really hard to walk off with the wheat. But if you're herding sheep, if somebody goes and takes your sheep, you've got to pick up a club and go after the sheep and get your sheep oh. back. And so it like leans, it lends itself to this particular temperament. And when I'm hearing you talk about like Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio, all I can think of is, I wonder if this is somehow bolstering Malcolm Gladwell's hypothesis on here. We'd have to know more about when his family came over because that's a lot of, would tell us a lot. Um, for example, a lot of the people who settled in Virginia in the mid-1700s were Scotch-Irish. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know what familiar Scotch-Irish are, 
but it's basically Irish people who had left, not the Irish people, but the Scottish people who left Scotland to go settle in Ireland, maybe for a generation. And then they, from there, came to the colonies and settled there. So some of that could be here. Um, I haven't found evidence of that necessarily, but I know I have a lot of my own ancestors who are Scotch-Irish, but there are, you have some who settled in Virginia originally. And if you go back far enough, I mean, this is where it's important, how far back, and I didn't keep digging because I ran out of time. Um, and, And I was hitting walls at that point. To go further would require a lot more investigative means, a lot more requesting of records and those types of things. But the earlier settlers in Virginia and North Carolina came from some of the more wealthy families and were not indentured necessarily. Whereas the later ones were more likely to have been indentured. So it's kind of a mixed bag. It's an interesting theory on his part, but. I'm just here because, you know, my family's quite a bit of it is Scotch Irish mm-hmm. and I can vouch for the tempers. So <laughs> I was just wondering if that was like, Hmm, I wonder. So, well, Shelby's wife was Mary Riley, um, as I said before, and she was the daughter of Edward Riley and Rosa Miller. The Rileys go back to Gentleman John Riley, who was born in 1803 in Virginia. He was married to Jane Johnston, the daughter of Dr. Samuel Johnston and Sarah Pennington. And we will get back to them in a little bit, kind of. But we're going to go over to Mary Riley's sister, Zarina. Great name. Yeah, Z-E-R-E-N-A. She was married. She married George S. Nolan on the 24th. On the 24th. She married George S. Nolan on November 1924. They had two daughters, Lillian and Norma. Then on the 12th of June, 1933, George passed away. He was an engineer in an oil field, and on this day, he got caught on the wheel of an engine, and his head was crushed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ten months later, the girls were left orphans to live separately with family, because on November 27th, Zarina Zarina encountered a man who shot her with a shotgun and then fled. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's tragic. Part of the shotgun charge came close to her heart. She lived immediately but died two days later. They did catch the man, and I didn't see the results, but I imagine he went to jail, I would hope. But that was one of those where I'm like, oh, gunshot wound when I saw it on a death certificate. (laughs) But then when you realize that two children are left – and they were raised separately, yeah. one living with one aunt and uncle, the other one living with another aunt and uncle. It's yeah. just tragic. Another sibling of Mary was her brother, Milburn Riley. He was born in 1915, and he was killed on the 22nd of December, 1944, by homicide, gunshot. So this is the second sibling who's killed with a shotgun or a gun and I wanted to know more obviously when I stumbled on his death certificate and I looked in the Courier Journal on the 24th of December 1944 and found the following article 
Jesse Hardy, 18, Estill County, was acquitted at his examining trial in Estill County Court here today in connection with the death of Milburn Riley, about 30, of Lee County. Irvine Police Chief John M. Wilson said Riley was shot to death by Hardy, a restaurant employee, when the former attempted to stage a holdup yesterday. Oh my gosh. So basically, Milburn died because he was trying to rob a place. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm beginning to think that the people who just led normal, peaceful lives and had good jobs were, you know, the, the rarity in that family. <laughs> right? There's just so much in this family. It's amazing. Now we're going to go back to, I believe this is Glenn's third great-grandfather, Granville Riley. Uh, he was born in 1843 and died in 1914. He was a Civil War vet. And this is one thing I did find interesting about his family. Randall served on behalf of the Union. Good on him. And every one of Glenn's direct ancestors who lived in Kentucky, which was a border state, mm -hmm. served in the Union. Well, didn't most of Kentucky serve in the Union? A good portion, but there are some that served in the Confederacy or they went to another state. Okay. But like Missouri, Missouri was a border state as well, but you had a mix mm -hmm. there. And you definitely had your pro-slavery people in Missouri. Just go ask the people in Lawrence, Kansas. And so, Yeah. Um, but he married first Sarah June Baker, and they had two daughters. They divorced another divorce, and this would have been like in the 1860s. And he then married Icy Burton. Icy? How do you spell yeah. that? I-C-Y. Her name was Isabel, but she went by Icy. Okay. Okay. It's a fun <laughs> nickname. Yes. Now, remember how I mentioned um, Sarah Pennington was a grandmother who was married to Dr. Samuel, I think, Riley? I'm not trying to remember. Anyhow, um, her father was Captain, now I'm going to butcher this because I do not know how to pronounce it, so I'll probably shorten it, but it's spelled M-I-C-A-J-A-H. Micah, okay. Micah Ja, but I'm gonna say Micah because I'm wondering if it was just a unique spelling for it. But so we're gonna talk about Captain Micah M. Pennington Sr., Glenn's fifth great grandfather, who was the great grandfather of Granville Riley. He was born in 1743 in Rowan County, North Carolina. By the time of the revolution, he lived in Wilkes County. And this is kind of important because during the revolution, there was a Colonel Benjamin Cleveland and he led the Wilkes County Regiment on behalf of the Patriots. And he became known as the terror of the Tories and the Tories being the loyalist. Well, turns out Micah was a loyalist. He was also a justice of the peace in the county a job he held because of his loyalty to the crown. While he was never harmed by the Patriots, his possessions at one time or another were confiscated. 
But I, from what I understand, Colonel Cleveland took great joy in chasing after anybody who was a loyalist. And there was a lot of violence done to those who were. Now, we're going to go back to Shelby again. Shelby Rogers, because the Rogers family is, like I said, a mess. <laughs> and his older sister, Emma. So this would be Glenn's great aunt. Emma married Burt Riley on the 23rd of December, 1919 in Lee County, Kentucky. They had three children, George, Amanda, and Lona. Bert would not only be his great uncle, he's also his first cousin, twice removed from the Riley side of the family. Oh. Mm -hmm. So let me explain that. He was removed through Shelby's wife, Mary Riley, his grandmother. Her uncle, George Riley, was Bert's father. Okay. World War One veteran, having served as a cook in the U.S. Army, from what I can tell. Um, I was looking at some records of the war, and there was a little penciled in note, cook, U.S. Army. So I'm not 100% that's correct, but I'm assuming that they knew what they were doing on this um, form. I believe it was form for a, uh, which, a tombstone from the military. In fact, he was discharged exactly six months before the wedding. It seems he was on, um, okay, and it seems like he was transported at one time or another on a Navy ship as he returned home from France. Then after they married, they had three children, the last one, Lona, in 1926. Then things took a turn for the worst. For no reason I could find... Bert ended up in Visalia, California in 1927. I do not know if his family was with him. Now, before I continue, I need to emphasize, I triple checked this several times because I found it odd that he'd go from Kentucky or Ohio out to California on a whim. He, you know, he just had a child in 1926. Why is he in California? I even looked up his physical description from the World War I draft card and the World War II draft cards. And I don't think there's that many, probably Burt Riley's out there that have five foot four and a half with a ruddy complexion. So most everything fit on that. I know that he was in California though because of the Visalia Daily Times. That says on February 26, 1927, that Burt Riley was sought by Visalia police for breaking into the barber shop where he worked to steal equipment in December, 1926. Wow, these yeah. guys are winners. Yes, and he had worked at this barber shop for only two weeks and decided to steal. The wow. police eventually found him in Calexico, California, which sits on the border of California and Mexico. And they arrested him, bringing him back to Tulare County. Then in March, he was found guilty of burglary in the second degree. He was denied probation and sentenced to one to 15 years and sent to San Quentin prison. Wow. Pretty severe for a burglary, I would think. In mm -hmm. the Visalia Times Delta, on the 19th of March, 1927, Riley told the court he had been in the Navy and was on the USS Kansas, which conveyed President Wilson to France. Hmm. Then in June, 
So it's only a couple months later, he was transferred from San Quentin to Folsom State Prison. I do not know when he was released. And it is possible this is a different Burt Riley. But the Burt Riley who served over there was from Kentucky. Okay. Uh, but I didn't find anybody else who fit that description. So, and I'm pretty sure this is correct. So this means that he was in prison at this time in December 1928 when his wife, Emma, died. Oh, my. He died of a hemorrhage of the bowels. And he oh wasn't around for her or their children. He was released by 1930 and married again, adding six more children to his family. So now he has nine children. Wow. Mm -hmm. But that's not all. Emma and Bert's oldest child found himself in trouble with the law in 1953. The Dayton Daily News reported on June 13th that he had been arraigned before U.S. Commissioner J. Paul Gigan yesterday for the, on the charge of being a fugitive. He had been indicted in, his, in Kentucky for owning and operating an unlicensed still. <laughs> so probably That's some awesome. moonshine. Moonshiner. And That's George, awesome. would, yeah. So, and George would probably be a double cousin, but he'd be at least uh, Glenn's first cousin once removed. Oh, but that's not all. We're still not done. You mean there's more? Oh, yes. I told you this was a huge mess of a family. <laughs> Let me tell you about George's sister, Lona Riley. So this is Bert's daughter. Lona married a man known as Mike Denny. They had five children together. The last one born in 1965. Then tragedy struck. In the journal Herald on the 16th of December, 1966. Mother of five is found dead. Sheriff's deputies were investigating yesterday the death of a 39-year-old mother of five in Madison Township. Three unidentified brothers were being questioned last night in connection with the death of Lona Denny. She was found face down in a culvert at a Girl Scout camp off Snyder Road, north of Wolf Creek Pike. The woman's death was apparently accidental, detectives said. They gave this account. Mrs. Denny was picked up in a Dayton bar Wednesday night by a 24-year-old man. He drove to the camp off Snyder Road, one quarter mile west of Trotwood, and parked in a field at the base of a slight hill, the area known as Lover's Lane. So she's 39, he's 24, an early- Well, isn't she married? Yes. Okay. When he tried to leave the park, his car was stuck in the mud. He left Mrs. Denny and the car to seek help. After walking about a mile to a phone, because this is before cell phones, people, the 24-year-old contacted two of his brothers. The trio returned about 10 a.m. to dig out the car, and they noticed Mrs. Denny was missing. He, the 24-year-old, said he didn't think anything about it and thought she wandered home. While attempting to free the mired car, the brothers discovered the body. Detectives theorized she stumbled into the four-foot deep culvert while waiting for the 24-year-old to return with help. Her coat was lying on the edge of the culvert about 12 feet from the body. Surviving Mrs. Denny are her husband, William, four sons and a daughter, and six sisters and four brothers. Oh my God. But there's a follow-up article saying, 
Death ruled accidental. The death of 39-year-old mother whose body was found December 15th in a water-filled ditch in Madison Township was ruled accidental yesterday. The woman, Lona Denny, was discovered by a male companion who had left her in the car early that morning to get assistance. Sheriff's deputies theorized she wandered from the car during the man's absence and stumbled into the four-foot ditch. So, and her death was attributed to exposure and alcohol by the coroner's office. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it just, it's, it's, I find it kind of suspicious, though. I got to be honest. Um, I, mm -hmm. That's how my mind works, but I find it convenient that she's waits in the car and then suddenly she's out of it. I don't know many people who would do that in the middle of the night. And she didn't have her coat on. Right. It was 12 foot, 12 feet away from her. Why? Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. On another sad note, unfortunately for her, three of her children all died by 1977, two in 1977 and one the year before. Her son Marvin died of a gunshot wound in the stomach. He was shot in a family dispute by Bobby Charles Rogers. I believe this was a cousin and probably related to Glenn Edward Rogers, but I couldn't okay. figure out who Bobby Charles Rogers' father was. Okay. Um, so I've tried, but I'm kind of limited based on the time period. Bobby was indicted and charged with voluntary manslaughter and felonious assault. And I couldn't find the final outcome, but I do know that by 1983, he's out and he got married. Okay. The next year, Marvin's brothers, we're going to go back to them. Um, so this is Lona's sons. Larry and Robert died of injuries resulting from a car crash. Okay. And that is the family of Glenn Edward Rogers. Oh my gosh. The whole family's tragic. Yes. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And you know, it's like, do I leave something out? Do I, <laughs> I'm sure I did because you have to kind of go, it, it's a mess. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I hope the latest generation is able to get their act together. Right. I, I would hope so. I, I would think there's some hope. I didn't go too far going down. Yeah. Well, cause they're all probably still alive. And well, and that's the main thing. You know, they're all still alive. I don't want to dig into them. Yeah. They have a right to peace. I hope that his son that is still living has a good life and mm -hmm. does better than his family before. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you just, it's just crazy how it's almost like some families are just cursed, you know? Yes. And that's what struck me is, yeah, you know, I know I've mentioned that there's some trees are kind of boring. I say I always find them interesting I should say but they don't have any activity they don't have any big stories to go with them other than oh he served in this war and or you can't find some of those stories this one was the complete opposite of that <laughs> <laughs> like everybody had a story yeah a lot of my time prepping for this was spending time writing out and figuring out what to include and uh -huh. because there was so much Oh my God. Well, this was really engaging and interesting. Thank you for sharing all this cool information. You're welcome. That was kind of fun. But I guess it is when, you know, when murder and family meet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great jingle that would be. <laughs> I don't know. But I all, you know, I, I figure I'll, I'll tell this to our listeners. 
what could be in your family? Mm -hmm. You know, do you have an interesting story? And I actually had a listener reach out to me recently going, and, and it's a listener and a friend and asking, can you help me try to find something on this? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm a little stuck in different places, but I did give her some information and she was thrilled. So that's awesome. Yeah. 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 I think everybody's family has a few skeletons, you know, I so, have fun with this. This has been really fun for me. So. Oh, I'm glad. I'm, I've been having fun with it too. It's a lot of work, but it's fun. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Until then, we want to know what's in your, what skeletons are in your closet. Yeah, in a couple of weeks. We'll <laughs> Bye, sweetie. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.